Hello, thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Lucas. And I'm Rowan. Welcome to Food of the Future, a podcast about alternative protein sources made by five honor students of Wageningen University and Research. So in this episode, we're going to cover a very excited novel food, cultured meat. To begin with, we're going to present some background on this topic, and later we will have an interview with an expert of cultured meat, co-founder and chief technical officer of Meatable, Dan Launing. So what exactly is cultured meat, Robin? Well, I'm glad you asked. Cultured meat is sometimes called lab-grown meat, and it is meat that is grown in a lab directly from animal cells. These cells are harvested from an animal with a small jab, but otherwise the animal is not harmed in any way from this meat. In the end, this would result in a mix of fat and muscle, which can reproduce steak, mince, and any other meat product without having to grow a whole animal. It is not commercially available yet, but many startups are working on growing real meat with all the right textures and all the right flavors. It sounds really, really promising, but how does this technology work exactly? Well, um, myoblasts are precursor cells for muscle cells. These can proliferate in a cell culture when presented with the right molecules. These molecules are called growth factor and basically tell the cells to grow. After growth, they can differentiate into tubes, which can eventually form muscle fibers. Of course, meat also consists of fat, so other molecules that make your fat cells form are also present. Lastly, these different types of cells need to be glued together with connective tissue. Luckily, it's the easiest of the three to grow, as it is the most robust when it encounters suboptimal conditions. So there are so many new novel food sources in this century, but can you explain our listeners a bit why we chose to research cultured meats? Yeah, of course. Livestock produces a big proportion of global greenhouse gas emissions, which you've probably heard in the news already. Cultured meat promises a way for meat eaters, which enjoy meat, to enjoy it without feeling guilty about the side effects of it. It could be produced faster and more efficient than traditional meat. And it could be a lot better for the environment. So we know a lot of health benefits of meat, such as, well, it's high in protein. Of course, there are some negative side effects associated with meat eating as well. But can you explain a bit more about health benefits uh, of cultured meat? Yeah. Generally, cultured meat will be very similar, if even almost indistinguishable from normal meat, once it is grown. Thus, the health benefits and risk will also be very similar. However, there are a few differences. With lab-grown meat, the risk of cross-contamination from E. coli and salmonella bacteria will be significantly lower, as there are no organs close to the meat that can carry these microbes. Animals, just like humans, are constantly being affected by all different kinds of microbes, and they usually enter from the organs. These could contaminate the meat, but this risk is not there in lab-grown meat. There is, of course, always a risk of contamination in the lab, but this is a lot smaller. On the other hand, there are some possible health risks attached to eating lab-grown meat. It is still unclear whether the cell proliferation that is happening in the meat can have an effect on the people that consume it. It might be that it increases the risk of diseases, but it is still completely unsure. Luckily, there's a lot of testing being done to make sure that the meat is safe to consume. So, so far, it seems very promising, but uh, why can't it, can we find it in grocery stores so far? Yeah. So lab-grown meat is still very much in the research phase. There's a lot of companies that are working on it, but it's not yet ready for low-cost scale-up and commercialization. It still faces some very specific technical challenges that are mostly related to the medium that is used to grow the muscle cells. Um, there's also some concerns about the health risk, just like we talked about earlier, and the ethics. As of now, 
expensive and animal-derived ingredients still play important roles in the formulation of the media. For example, many research into lab-grown meat uses fetal bovine serum in the medium. This medium provides the molecules needed for the cells to grow, the growth factors that we talked about. But this is of course very bad, because it's a serum that literally uses blood from unborn calves. This kind of defeats the whole purpose of not killing and not harming animals. Because of this, it is very difficult to standardize the medium, which is of course very important for consistent production of the meat. There are opportunities to not use fetal bovine serum, but we'll talk about that with Dan later. The medium also influences the nutritional qualities of the cultivated meat, which is also important for cultivation and for commercialization. What about the legislation? Does it also stand in the way of seeing cultured meat in grocery stores? Yeah, as of now, definitely. In the EU, certain foods are subject to what is called the novel food legislation. This basically describes all the various situations of foods originating from plants, animals, microorganisms, and food resulting from production processes and practices, which were not produced or used before 1997. To place such food in the market, an application must be submitted. This is definitely the case of lab-grown meat, which has only been around for a few years. Different companies are working on um, submitting this application. People are usually mm, kind of uh, resistant to change, especially in food industry. So how do consumers react to such a novel food? Yeah, so many consumers are willing to try cultured meat. It was seen that males are more willing to try it compared to females, and people with low income are more willing to try it compared to people with higher income. And younger people are more willing to try it compared to older people. What consumers like about cultured meat is that it avoids animal suffering. That is better for the environment, and it might be a way to solve global hunger. However, there are also some objecting. However, there were also some objections. People don't like the fact that cultured meat seems unnatural, that it's made in a lab. And they're afraid that cultured meat is not safe or healthy. Furthermore, people think that the taste won't be good. Also, some consumers think that the impact on farming and rural communities will be negative, because those farmers will be out of jobs. What was, interesting, what was interesting to see is that vegetarians and vegans have a more positive perception of cultured meat, but they were less willing to try it compared to people who do eat meat. And let's turn this to sustainability and sustainability issues in the, the century. Uh, how does this compare? How, how does cultured meat compare to the regular meat? Well, at first, it seems like the production of lab-grown meat could potentially help mitigate greenhouse gas emissions because land that usually need to grow agricultural crops for livestock rearing can be released and used for other purposes, such as carbon capture. Secondly, with cultured meat, there's a reduction of large direct and indirect emissions from agriculture and livestock farming, like digestion gases from livestock, production of fertilizers and other agrochemicals, use of fossil fuels by tractors, etc. Lastly, related to energy use, the energy consumption for chilled transport is reduced, as the cultivated meat has a lower mass because there are no non-edible parts, like bones and blood and other organs. Other than the environmental benefits in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, there are also the potential benefits for the conservation of wildlife, because there's a much less high pressure to convert natural habitats to farmland. However, the production of lab-grown meat is energy intensive, and if the production runs on non-renewable energy, then the overall production will not be as sustainable as it looks. It is found out that the production of cultivated meat is only slightly more sustainable than beef, but it's more unsustainable than chicken, this way. Moreover, production of lab-grown meat must be in a highly sterile room to avoid bacterial contamination, like we talked about with E. coli and salmonella. 
especially since the rich culture contains a nutrient-rich environment in which the bacteria can multiply much faster than they would in actual animal cells. There's also no immune system to fight off the bacteria. Sterility is often guaranteed by using disposable plastic materials. This generates plastic waste, which levels in ecosystem are already alarming. This could pose a problem. So since now we know more about cultured meat and we know the promising future and we also know the obstacles, let's ask the specialists how the research is going. Hi everyone. Well, uh, first I want to introduce Dan Luining. He is our guest today and um, he is the co-founder and CTO of Meetable, but maybe you can uh, better introduce yourself a little bit, talk about uh, who you are and what the company is. Yeah, great. Thank you for having me, uh, Robin. So my name is Dan Leining. I'm a founder, co-founder and CTO of Meetable. I have a background in cell molecular biology and tissue engineering. Uh, and I was once one in five people that participated on creating the, first, uh, the world's first laboratory-grown hamburger in the world. Uh, back in 2013, under the guidance of Professor Dr. Mark Post at the University of Maastricht, and then moved on in my career uh, to be part of the team of New Harvest, which is a nonprofit in the field of cellular agriculture. And this field is um, working on removing animals from our uh, food production system by use of fermentation or any other um, uh, biology, biological production processes. Uh, and I focus, of course, on the uh, on creating. Uh, real meat from animal cells, uh, which then from that point started a company around about three and a half years ago, which is called Meetable, like you mentioned. Uh, and uh, we have been growing the company ever since with about now, I think we're pushing 65 people at the moment and uh, raised quite some capital and uh, moving forward to uh, creating a product uh, that uh, the people can enjoy uh, somewhere in the in the near future. Yeah, thank you. I think it's a really interesting company and I think you're doing great work. Uh, like you said, you're one of thank the... You the very first people who worked on this. You said you were one of the first five people. Um, why did you initially choose this subject? What what draw you what drew you to it? Uh, it's an interesting question. So I started my studies focusing on tissue engineering for humans because I thought it was a it's it's pretty cool at least if you can cure somebody by creating a replacement tissue for for a damaged part uh, and. You know, since I was studying molecular biology, I thought I could participate in this type of research, uh, which I did. I did uh, study angiogenesis, so the forming of blood vessels uh, in the body uh, in at the VU, uh, and then came to know about the project that was done in Maastricht. Uh, and for me, that was it was uh, like an epiphany moment, like, oh, you know, I, I can do tissue engineering. I, I see a lot of potential in this field. I think it's very cool research to do. Uh, I will. Uh, approach Mark to see if I can participate in the research. So he gave a lecture in Leiden, which is my, at my where my alma mater is at. Uh, and I approached him and said, hey, I know tissue engineering. I think what you're doing is pretty great. Can I participate? He said, yeah, sure. Come on over. And a couple of weeks later, I was living in Maastricht. And then I, I, you know, I, I did the research there, which I loved. It was great. Uh, and I never left. I started to keep doing it and then I ended up here. Wow. That's, yeah, that's really great. Um, well, you said you're now working at Meetable. Uh, can you tell, tell us a bit about uh, where Meetable is now and what kind of step in the process you are at the moment? Mm, so we, we are now 
moving towards like a, a, a small production unit where we are producing materials that eventually people can taste. So that all the regulatory framework that has to be uh, built inside of the organization to make sure all your documentation and all your processes and all the materials that you produce are adherent to regulatory uh, food safety regulations uh, so that people can start tasting it. Uh, so we've really qu come quite far uh, from where we are right now. So we started in like late 2018 in Leiden uh, um, at the Bioscience Park in Leiden. And then we had 25 square meters of office space and 25 square meters of lab space uh, with just the three of us. And then, you know, start work growing cells and start making stuff and expanding. And then eventually we grew to eight people, which for 25 square meters is a bit small. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was so it basically all started in this room together with my co founder. So, we here's where we first met and started making the first plants, um, and then moved, to, of course, to light afterwards. But then, uh, from what was it, like 2019, later 2019, maybe 2020, we moved to uh, the biotech campus in Delft where also DSM is located. And if you went by train to Delft, you probably pass through the site because they have their own uh, real rate track. And uh, there we were able to house ourselves in their old R&D building, which they refurbished and had a lot of space to grow in. And from that point, it really took off, uh, exploding in the amount of people that we hired. Even during the COVID pandemic, I think we tripled the amount of people in the company. Um, growing more cells, uh, better differentiation processes, creating more muscle tissue, more fat tissue, uh, making sure the process is uh, reproducible and stable and safe and, and all the things that you have to do with, when it comes to food production. And then combining that with biotechnology, which is a, it's quite a challenge. Uh, and yeah, so then all the successes. And then uh, early last year, 2021, we raised our Series A round. So your funding rounds go by letters for some reason. I don't know why. But that's that's the case, uh, and raise that amount of money. So that's now we are able to buy larger volumes of bioreactors. So this is the devices that you grow your cells in, uh, by more increase the teams helping with that, uh, and then now off to uh, producing small quantities for the first taste trials and then for regulatory approval. Okay. Well, it sounds really interesting. Um, you said that you're now in the production stage, and I think your production is slightly different from uh, what we talked about in the introduction of this interview, because you're not using fetal bovine serum, are you? You're using uh, pluripotent cells. Can you tell us a bit about why you chose that and um, how it works? For as far as yeah, you can tell us about it, of course. Mm, of course, of course. I'm more than happy to share because I, I really think that this is quite unique to us since standard cell culture practices require a product, like you said, called fetal bovine serum, which is, I think, almost like the worst that humanity has to offer, getting blood from unborn calves to for their for their growth factors inside of the the blood to feed to cells. I think it's it's a horrendous thing, and I'm sure that. Nobody in this field has any doubt in their mind that this product is unacceptable when you're making a process like this. But they have to work on replacing that since most of the cells rely on the stimuli that this product provides. But if you use pluripotent cells, which is a cell type that is very early on in its uh, development, so it has a lot of growth potential by itself, 
you don't need to have that signaling that comes from the fetal bovine serum. The cells provide the, the growth uh, stimulus themselves because that's what the, the, the genes that are responsible for that are turned on. So this is a very beneficial cell type to produce at large scale. You only have to strike the cells once. Uh, so you don't need to reharvest cells from an animal if you do with uh, like adult muscle cells. Uh, they have the innate growth capacity for no, and then not the requirement of fetal bovine serum. And you can turn them into basically any cell type that you want. But of course, we are most interested in muscle and fat, since that is the majority where your uh, meat tissue is being made of. Uh, so first growing the cells is pluripotent to a large volume, and then turning them into muscle and fat is like, a, that's a standard process that we are now adopting and applying. And it really shows that the stability and the potential of these cells holds true in our case that we are able to scale and reduce costs significantly over time that we are belie- that we believe that eventually when you do this at a commercial level you can create price parity products uh, that is actual meat right that it really comes from an animal to animal protein so that's uh, i think then then at that moment uh, a lot of people will probably will be more comfortable and have the idea like, oh, I really want to try something else instead of just either plants or animals. And this way you can be conscious about uh, what you're eating and not the damage that it does to the environment or animals or the planet or your people for that matter. Um, you know, their zoonosis has been a hot topic in the past uh, two years. Uh, and I think we definitely have to start thinking of a different way how we are producing our food using animals as their source. Yeah, I think that's really clear. Like you said, zoonosis is a big problem and not using animals is both for animal welfare really good, but also for our own welfare. Um, you are still very much in the research phase. You're working on scaling up. But what do you think are the biggest um, hurdles that you're now facing and that could um, potentially make it so that cultured meat is still takes a lot of time before we see it in the supermarkets? It's good. I don't think it's one. It's not fair to say what is the first or the thing most on your mind because it's, it's a lot. It is not an easy process. This has never been done before. Large-scale tissue production for consumption has never been done before. Even large-scale tissue production in general has never been done before. And then with large-scale, I mean like kilograms and thousands of kilograms. Because what people don't realize is that only in the Netherlands, on a daily basis, so this is not per year, this is on a daily basis, people eat two and a half million kilograms of meat every day. And this is just the Netherlands. Imagine Germany, which is higher in the spectrum of uh, meat uh, kilograms per capita. Uh, I think we are at 60 to 80 kilograms per person per year, and Germany is about 100. And then the States is 120. And then, you know, we're not, you know, that, that this is what you see happening. As soon as people have access to more wealth, the first thing they do is adopt uh, animal proteins in their diets and this is now starting to pile on with more people coming out of poverty uh, so thinking that we can just have a silver bullet by creating one factory and suddenly we solve the world problem of animal consumption is, is delusional so it's all these things it's a regulatory framework that has to fall in place it's a scaling up it's a talent it's uh, the people's mindset about what we're now doing in our food system um, it's uh, scaling uh, the, uh, the scaling the production and making sure that you have high quality protein. It's all these things that have to fall into place. So just saying it's one is, I think, not fair to all the other things that have to be solved as well. So yeah, it is a really hard challenge. But if it was a, if it was easy, more people would have been doing it, and it would not be a problem, right? So that's why. Uh, 
um, that, that's why a lot of people are still working on this and uh, believing that this will kind of be a, a, a solution to a problem. Else we can just all eat plants, right? But that doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are still people who really just like the taste of meat, and that's totally fair. Um, yeah, I, I think the latest numbers for vegan and vegetarianism in Western society is around 3 to 5%, which is, you know, not, not that much. Um, and... Uh, in India, it's a bit more, but of course, that's where you can see also with maybe religion plays a role and also uh, social economical status plays a role. But as, yeah, like I said, as soon as people earn more money, they eat more meat. Yeah, yeah. I think here in Wageningen, we're in quite of a bubble. I think around me, uh, everyone always eats vegetarian. Um, but it's it's good that we're offering um, other options for people who like the taste of meat. Uh, you talked about the mindset. Have you noticed this is very... Um, well, at least we noticed in our research that it's very varied. Some people are really enthusiastic, other people are really hesitant. Um, have you noticed any of this mindset, any of these um, these opinions? Oh, it, it has been a, for me at least, from my perspective, a 100 degree or an 80 degree turn on where we started from. When I first started explaining what I was doing like back in 2013, 14, there was pitchforks and torches People were looking at me like they, like I was some weirdo, and this was science fiction, and it, it, it was, it was not always the most pleasant conversations I had when I was explaining that I thought this was be would be a, a a good solution for the problems that we have. A lot of people didn't even know at the time agriculture was a major contributor to environmental detriment. It was not as widespread known as it is right now. It was all coal, oil, and all those. Uh, the energy, uh, the energy part was more uh, the focus. Of the uh, of the climate challenges, but now it has become for some reason. I think 2017, 18. Suddenly, this whole mindset switched, and now farmers are being targeted for their damaging environment, which is not always fair, right? Uh, it's not always fair to do so, but it has its reality. It's a fact. Uh, if you see what's happening currently in in at least in the Netherlands, but also in Germany, uh, farmers are protesting that they are now being portrayed as these environmental disaster causers, which is I don't think is really fair. Um, but still, even today, there's like you said, there's a mosaic of people, right? Mosaic of people that so, you know, some people that are vegetarian right now uh, who might try our product we call them carnophilic vegetarians so people who don't eat meat because of conviction uh, environmental or welfare say hey if you can remove that for me then i still like to enjoy the taste of it and there's people that of course just don't eat it because you know they don't think it's it's a healthy part of their diet or they just don't like the taste so there's a variety of people but like i said uh, the market is so mind-boggling huge that it doesn't matter if it's only a percent I think global meat and fish uh, markets are a thousand billion dollars a year. That's how big this is. So we need we need to do everything. We don't have the luxury to say, oh no, plants going to solve. Oh, this no, the same, same. It would be crazy if you would do this with energy, right? If you would say, oh no, solar is going to going to do everything. No, no, that's not how this works. You need to do and wind and solar and nuclear and maybe even more experimental like tidal wave energy uh, fusion or fission. All these things you have to you have to try to make sure you're not reliant on one source of energy. And the same goes with food. You don't you want to have options, and you want to make sure that there's a continuation uh, in risk mitigation uh, of the production processes that you have. So for and then maybe to turn back to your question, 
yeah, I, I have seen a lot of variation. Uh, people are huge uh, fans of the idea. People who are not so much. Uh, but I think there's enough on both sides to make sure that, that there's room for everybody to uh, to exert their choice in what to eat. Yeah, exactly. I think that is that is also what we want to show with this podcast, that there are many different types of food of the future. And there's not one perfect solution. There's all these different types of solutions. And together, um, maybe they can solve the problem. I, I think they have to. I, I think they have to. The The problem is too big to rely on one thing to, to take it away. I don't think that's, uh, that's reality and hasn't turned out and hasn't shown to be. Yeah, exactly. Um, you talked a little bit about zoonosis, which is one of the big risk factors with um, growing animals and getting meat from there. Have there any? Have there been any risks that you've encountered with um, cultured meat, and how have you mitigated those risks? The good thing is that, of course, we grow these cells under sterile conditions, and if we fail at that, it's it's basically a kill switch. Because there will never be product when we have a bacterial infection. All cells would die. So there won't be a product at the end. So we have, I think we have an advantage there, that we are not able to create an infection that will turn up in the, the product, at least during the production process. You know, if you open a package and you leave it out, out of the fridge, you know, uh, things happen. Uh, but not during the process itself. I think it actually we have an advantage in this since... A cow is born and you feed it and you slaughter it and then it's being sold. There's no QA, QC, no sample testing of a cow during its lifetime to see you know how it's doing. And when we're if you're using like biology in the way that we are intending, you can control the process and measure the process and have all these steps in place that you want to check up on how things are going, which you cannot do in an animal. So we can go into a bioreactor, take a sample of the cells. How are the cells feeling? We have probes. Oh, how's the pH being controlled? How's the temperature being controlled? How's the dissolved oxygen being controlled? Oh, we can do afterwards saying, oh, how much protein is being made in this process? How much types of protein are being made in, in this process? Really taking a, a molecular biology approach to understanding what we are making, how we're making it, and what finally comes out of the process. And I think that is, that is going to be quite unique. Uh, maybe even leading, and this is a very much speculation and uh, definitely not what we're currently are working on, but thinking of, oh, can I steer the process to have a better nutrient value, like uh, types of fat that you have in there or higher protein content in there or maybe lower protein content in there to um, make a more personalized uh, product for different types of group of people that have preferences in their diet. Uh, a lot of people compare then, oh, can you make Wagyu beef? Yeah, probably. Is But is that going to be like, oh, standard uh, Sunday beef uh, uh, dinner uh, dinner protein? I, I doubt it. Uh, but these are the things like, yeah, we, we, we can start thinking about those things as well and, and what actually is meat and, and uh, what do people then enjoy about it? Yeah, so it sounds like you're really able to control every step of the process and also change it and make it to be what you want it to be. Eventually, eventually. Yeah. Right now we're just controlling the process. We want just to make 100% real meat from what you get from an animal. Then afterwards, then we can start thinking about those things. But it's it's quite it's already challenging enough to get to that point, right? And then afterwards we can uh, we can start dreaming a little bit. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, you already talked about it a bit when you 
um, have to grow meat from an animal. You have to grow the entire animal, all its bones, all its organs, uh, which is generally seen as not very sustainable. Um, are there any steps that you're doing specifically to make your process more sustainable, apart from the fact that it's that you're not growing an entire animal? Well, that that is that's about it, right? Since normally, for example, especially ruminants, they they belch uh, and they produce either ammonia or methane, and they have all these byproducts just for them being alive. And not well, we were pretty good at utilizing most parts of the animal. There's not a lot of going to waste, but for example, small intestines of of cows, which are quite extensive are just gone and in our case we convert all the matter that we feeding the cells all the glucose all the amino acids all the salts just you know the mixture of nutrients that the cells consume the intention is that we con- we uh, we convert them all in the material that we actually want so not every not all the other stuff that we that we don't want uh, and this of course especially since you don't have to digest all this stuff where the uh, methane bacteria resides in the stomachs of of, um, of cows, for example. We don't need that, and this, of course, is is massive benefit since methane. And there's debate on this, of course. So it's a 25 or whatever times more potent greenhouse gas, but it's less long lived. Uh, but it's still, it's it's an unnecessary uh, greenhouse gas that you're producing just by feeding an animal. If you don't have to do that. Uh, with our method, I think you can already make huge steps in, in the reduction of the uh, the output of this type of product. Yeah, that makes sense. You're just eliminating all those unnecessary byproducts and really focusing on having a nearly 100% conversion from um, yeah from input to output. Yeah, the, the call is a mass balance, and a lot of people have been working on this, also with life cycle analysis. A famous study for this is from CE Delft, uh, and of course we've done our in, internally ours as well, since our, the, the process they describe doesn't necessarily match what, what we have been doing, but at least showing that utilizing these processes, there is, there's better conversion rate. And it is not great, right? If you're going for the status quo, an animal, a cow, I think it's one kilogram of feed for 25, uh, 25 kilograms of feed for one kilogram of, of meat eventually. Chickens is much better. And of course, chickens don't produce methane and that type of thing. So that's why we're mainly focused now on, on porcine and bovine uh, meat that we're trying to produce. But also uh, pigs, all the ammonia that they're producing that now even the Dutch government is thinking about buying out farmers that are close to um, protected uh, natural areas since all the, the ammonia that uh, that is being produced there I think I think what it does is it spurs uh, certain plants which are not native to us and then out compete the uh, the native species which is yeah it's it's not it's not what we want right this is not what we're supposed to be doing so that's why converting or at least having an intent in what you're making and not using an organism that hasn't been designed for your needs and then using that as a as a vehicle for for your food i think i think it's time for like a, a second uh, agricultural revolution and i think this is part of it yeah i think that's a really good summary it's time for a second agricultural uh, some uh, second agricultural revolution you said that you're now mainly working on quality control and um uh, matching the regulations are there many regulations for yeah i'm sure there are many regulations for how this is working um and i was also wondering um on the legal side of things is there are there any extra steps you have to take uh, is this a novel food is it not um are you working on that at the moment oh but it's yeah it's definitely novel food right come on this is, <laughs> is as novel as it comes yeah <laughs> is it? 
uh, and basically most of the things are being made now which are not has i think the rule was if it hasn't been eaten after 1972 it or yeah 72 is considered a novel food so it, that's quite uh there's quite a few things now and um I've I've came to learn a lot about food safety and how we are producing food in the past couple of years. And I'm in awe. I'm in awe that I can just go into a supermarket and never in my life has been a thought in my head, oh, I might die from this, what I'm now buying. Never. Well, laundry detergent maybe, right? But it's at least when it comes to food. <laughs> ne- yeah. Never in my life. I can go to a supermarket and basically everything, I can take a bite or drink or eat and not scared of anything. And that is amazing if you think on how supply chains in this industry works, the mass production of food that now we have gone from, I think for, like really long ago from majority of people per, are responsible for producing food by now I think less than 1% in a consistent basis. I think more people are now dying for overeating than than uh, the starvation. That's a success story, right? That is an amazing success story. Um, and we did that with learning and experimenting and f- making mistakes. And we learned from those mistakes, which has come to a point that we now have a framework saying, okay, so if we do we we make sure that it's safe like this, then at least we are comfortable with the idea that you can walk into a supermarket and not think about getting poisoned by anything. And I think that is fantastic. And I think we should adhere to that as like the, high, the lowest standard. I think what we're trying to do, of course, is go above that since we can claim that you know there's no chance of an infection in our system. So we want to go beyond that. But yeah, we, 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 we love to... Uh, also understand from regulators on how that works in a new process, since it is quite a new process. So also from their side, there is uncertainties on, okay, you're eating animal protein, yeah, but it didn't come from an animal. Yeah, well, it did. Yeah, but you didn't slaughter. You you could actually eat the animal while sitting next to you. So yeah, that, yeah, that's true. You know, that, it's it's hard sometimes to get people across to that idea and then saying, okay, so but then what do you want us to show you? Because you know, we 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 take the uh, we take the best approach to make sure that it's safe. But sometimes uh, what we think is safety doesn't necessarily mean that government thinks it's safety. There are things that, you know, who, who knew that these were things that are uh, turned out to be crucially important for their uh, for their side to uh, to undertake. So this is, uh, yeah, this is a continuous process that we're working on and um, we're happy to do so. And we're really looking forward to filing a dossier and uh, working together with uh, the EFSA and the USDA and FDA and all the other organizations to, uh, to get this to market. Yeah, it sounds like you're really working hard and doing a lot of things, but uh, it also sounds like you're very hopeful for the future. Oh, God, you have to be. We also, we also need you guys, right? If, if, if we are not hopeful, who will be, right? Yeah, exactly. We got the ones with the opportunity. You're, and I know young people have got it hard these days, right? So come on, hang in there, guys, because we need you. We need you more than ever, I think. So it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's not easy times. It's not easy times, especially the last two years have been very dreadful. It has been, um, and especially the thing for students. I think that's like a silent, uh, a silent group that hasn't been heard that much. Uh, so um, I, I, my heart goes out to you guys, and I really hope that things turn out great. And I, I also, you know, I'm, uh, I, I don't want to uh, want to pluck our, of course, meetable, but for us, there, there's opportunity to participate in this, right? We have been growing ever since, and we're thinking about expanding the team quite a bit. So please, uh, if you if you care about this and, and you want to participate in, in making the world a, a better place, at least from our perspective and our, our dreams, then please join, because I think we can we can use all the help that we can get. 
from talented people, probably like yourself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think everyone who's working on this podcast is really excited about all the companies we're working with. So uh, definitely, I think uh, this is a great, uh, great group that you uh, you have around. Nice, you. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then we have one last question that we ask every company. I think you've already talked about it a little bit, but um, if you imagine the food of the future, uh, what would you think that looks like and how would you think uh, we'll be eating in the future? I, I don't necessarily think uh, there's a food of the future. I think there is going to be a, a, f- a food system of the future. And I really have a strong hope and, and vision for that is that instead of uh, growing all your food outside of cities, like on acres and on land that's outside of cities and transporting it everywhere inside of cities and all over the world. I'm, I'm dreaming of a system where we have a, like a food tower inside of the big cities so that you have like on, on the bottom level, you have a grocery store where all the products are being sold. But on the first level, you have cultivated meat production. On the second floor, you have cultivated milk, cultivated eggs, algae fermentation that producing all types of goods that people then start, uh, that can uh, eat in their local neighborhood. So you have locally produced foods in these towers, uh, sustainably and then without the transportation, since that also contributes quite a lot to the carbon footprint, right? Moving stuff from A to B with like huge oil tankers just so that we can eat instant noodles here is quite wasteful. So having these centers in in cities, uh, and of course, urbanization is now in our question since a lot of people moved out of cities in the, during COVID, but I don't think that's going to last. Eventually, we, the urbanization is going to get bigger and bigger. And imagine that you have uh, in New York City, you see a skyscraper, but knowing that inside of the skyscraper, food is being made that you can freshly eat right around your corner instead of, you know, it's from California transported to New York and it has been, you know, the, the oxygenized OJ that you're drinking, which doesn't always taste that fresh. So uh, I, I, think, I think in most, more in those terms that you have everything close by and know that you didn't have to slaughter animals for it. I think that's an amazing point of view to have. I think uh, I'm looking forward, <laughs> oh, I, I look forward no. to getting my cultivated meat and eggs and, and milk from a, a tower in the city. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right, but it's, it's a really vision, but it's, it's, I, I just love the idea. I think it's, it's really, it's really a cool idea. So I'm really working hard on, on getting this to work. So that's, uh, that's also part of why I'm doing this. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time, for your um, information, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing meetable products in the supermarket. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. The interview was super interesting. I really loved Dan's enthusiasm about cultured meat. Yes, his enthusiasm was so contagious. What I found most interesting was the shift in the view of the general public about lab-grown meat, which we hadn't really talked about before. A few years ago, meatable employees felt like mobs of angry people were so against their plans. But now that the public has seen the bad sides of the meat industry, cultured meat seems like a much more viable option. Yeah, totally. The opinion shift was very interesting. I also liked how he was so enthusiastic about the future of food and about the role young students can play in the protein transition. It is always nice when somebody believes in you. And I think it's very inspiring. Yeah, definitely. I also liked how Dan talked about the possible risks associated with cultured meat. It makes sense to me that when viruses or bacteria enter the growth chamber, this kills the cells because they use up all the nutrients that were there. A big plus for cultured meat that not many people realize and are aware of is that there are much lower risk of contracting diseases like salmonella, so it's probably safer to consume the normal meat. It is also great they don't need to use fetal bovine serum because that is clearly one of the biggest ethical hurdles for people wanting to eat cultured meat. It is also very expensive. 
people probably won't eat cultured meat if it's more expensive than the normal meat or other alternatives. Yeah, definitely. Well, overall, I think cultured meat still has a very long way to go, especially in terms of large-scale production and legislation. But it's such an interesting field, so we should all definitely keep our eye on it. Thank you for listening to the Food of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support novel and creative food sources, please share it with others. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.